And uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will come and that you will breathe life into your word to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got an email this week uh, from one of the members of the church I served before coming to Open Gate Church, informing me that an elderly man who used to visit with us on a fairly regular basis, who had been living in a care facility for a few years, had passed away. His name was Kelly, and he was quite the character. Someone else from our church responded to the email remembering Kelly as a colorful, funny, and somewhat irreverent character who didn't want to take things too seriously. He was uh, definitely a little rough around the edges, that's putting it very mildly. Unfortunately, this meant there were a number of times when he did rub people the wrong way. He would often make comments that people found quite offensive and were certainly not acceptable uh, in a church setting or any other setting for that matter. And unfortunately, there were even a couple occasions when I was told by someone from our church to ask Kelly to stop attending, which, which I didn't do, by the way. What do we do when people come into our midst in a way that goes against what we consider to be acceptable within the church? I would argue that Paul addresses this in today's reading from Romans 4. Last week, we began a guided tour through the highlights of the book of Romans that's been put together for us through our common lectionary. And we looked at the question, is God justified? This was asked by those who felt for centuries that God was being inconsistent, contradictory in his character. They asked, how can a righteous God be just? and show mercy at the same time. And Paul agreed, God is justifiably angry at sinners, and that as a just judge, he couldn't simply acquit the guilty, simply ignore sin. That would be unjust. God's own law required sin to be appeased before it could be forgiven, and the price that needed to be paid according to God's law was blood before we could be redeemed from slavery to sin. But Paul then explained that when Jesus came, he provided the answer to the question that had been bothering these religious leaders and teachers for centuries, that Jesus paid the price for our redemption with his own blood, that Jesus was the propitiation for our sin. In other words, he appeased God's wrath that we are all guilty, but God sent Jesus to exonerate us, to save us from our sentence. And last week we saw that that is the gospel, the short version of the gospel. But as we introduced Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we saw that in it and throughout it, Paul goes into great depth into his unpacking of this gospel, this good news. We also saw that he was writing to a church to address a debate. The church was compromised of Jewish believers, those who had come to accept Jesus as the Messiah and therefore as their Lord and Savior, as well as non-Jewish Gentile believers who had also accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and were therefore, through Jesus, being introduced for the first time 
to the one true God of the people of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who had given the law to Moses, the God who had redeemed his people from Egypt. So the debate then was over whether these new believers also needed to follow the Jewish laws that are found in the Old Testament to make them proper Christians. But Paul says, as he does in other letters to other churches, that that is not necessary. And then goes into great detail explaining why. He explains that because of Jesus, we receive this redemption not through obedience to the law, something that no one can actually achieve, but simply through faith. And that through believing in Jesus and accepting him as our Lord and Savior, we receive a new status redeemed by Jesus' blood, a new family welcomed into God's family as his children and heirs, welcomed into his church as members of Christ's body, and a new future as followers of Jesus. And in today's reading from Romans 4, Paul continues to explain how we are saved, not by obeying God's law, but by faith in Jesus alone. The opening of this passage, verse 13, says it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So Paul uses Abraham as a prime example of one who pleased God and was saved through faith and faith alone. He didn't even know the law. He didn't have the law that came to God's people later through Moses. Paul continues in verse 14, For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Quite simply, if the inheritance promised to Abraham and his offspring is gained by observing the law, then righteousness Righteousness is no longer by faith. It can't be. It's not by trusting in or relying on the promise of God's work. It's by works of human performance. And if this is the case, faith means nothing. Abraham's faith in particular. And this means the promise to Abraham is worthless. Because he would have been unable to earn his inheritance by observing the law. He didn't have the law. And so the promise that made to him would have basically be abolished. It would mean nothing. Now, Paul isn't just arguing this point to illustrate that we're saved by faith and not by works. He's arguing that we cannot be saved by works at all. We cannot be saved through the law. And the reason Paul gives for this is that the law brings wrath. The law stirs up God's anger. Or as Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And T. Wright argues that the main problem with the law is that its function is to shed light on sin and deal with it. That the law inevitably imposes penalties for failure to keep it. And there's quite a lot of sin to shed light on and deal with, not the least within the covenant people themselves. All people. Whether God's chosen people or not cannot keep the law. But the people of Israel who had received the written law had a responsibility to keep it. And this means they had a greater responsibility or accountability for their sin. And this means 
that they had an even greater need to be saved from God's wrath. Paul is saying that if you rely on the law for the inheritance of salvation, you'll end up with nobody inheriting. That the promise to Abraham would be worthless. There'd be no inheritance. And so he continues that the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. Now this doesn't mean that if you haven't read the Bible, you can't sin. But what Paul is getting at is that for those who have received the law but are unable to keep it, there must be some sort of, we'll call it a law-free zone for now, for them to live in. There must be some way they can actually succeed. And that zone does exist because of God's grace. That zone is the place where our sins have been forgiven. Not because we earned it, but because God loves us and sent Jesus to pay the price for us so that our sins, our debts, are washed away, gone, forgiven. A sin-free zone. And Paul is explaining that we can't do anything to earn this forgiveness. It's only received through faith. And so in verses 14 to 16, he presents a choice between righteousness through faith based on God's grace and righteousness through a knowledge of the law, which would have given Israel a greater opportunity to be more righteous than the Gentiles, regardless of faith, but also a greater opportunity to fail. Paul says in verse 16, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. That there is a special relationship between faith and grace. Faith means trusting in another, not in one's own efforts. And because of this, it's directly connected to grace, which involves trusting in God to give us the gift we cannot earn by our own efforts. And the beauty of this as Paul continues, is that it means that all people, including the Gentiles and the Jews, those who knew the rules and those who didn't, can come to God on equal footing. So Paul explains, therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all. Abraham's offspring not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. Not only the Jewish believers, but all who have faith, the same faith as Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Paul then explains that when God chose Israel to be his people, it wasn't so that they could just remain an exclusive, privileged club, an inner circle. That allowing Jewish and non-Jewish believers to come to God on equal footing is a fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. That all this is to give Abraham the family he was promised in the first place. Not just one people in one place, but a multi-ethnic family throughout the entire world. When God chose Abraham, he made a covenant with them which we observed when we looked at the Ten Commandments, is a relationship agreement, a lot like wedding vows or promises. God made a vow, a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, many descendants, that they would take possession of the promised land and that the entire world would be blessed through him, through them. 
Abraham was promised that he would inherit the land. However, in Hebrew, the word for the land that we read in the promise given in the book of Genesis is Eretz. The word Eretz also means earth. And this is the translation Paul uses in Romans as Paul explains that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, the earth. The promise given to Abraham as God's heir, his inheritance includes not just, not only the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, but also, also the whole world. That God's covenant justice was always designed to put the whole world right again. Paul continues in verse 17, quoting the promise made to Abraham in Genesis The revelation that Abraham is not just the father of the Jews or the father of the people of Israel. He is the father of us all. Paul shares, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Paul reminds us that God calls into being things that are not. The Bible tells us God can speak things into being. It's Genesis 1, 3 tells us, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Paul explains that the choosing of God's people, the people of Israel, the possession of the land, the land of Canaan, the giving of the law through which God's people were meant to bless the nations, all of these were a kind of advance revelation for God's larger purpose and the larger extent of his promise to Abraham. And we know that God reveals more of himself and his plans for the world in this way, that God revealed himself through the law in the Old Testament and further revealed himself through the incarnation of Jesus. We saw this throughout our series in the Ten Commandments and Beatitudes. And we saw that Jesus came not to abolish or replace the law, but to fulfill it and expand on it. In today's passage, Paul shares that Jesus came not to abolish or replace God's promise to Abraham, but to fulfill and expand on it. When God spoke his promise to Abraham, when God decreed Abraham as the father of many nations, he didn't mean just one nation. He didn't just mean Abraham's descendants through Isaac, the 12 tribes of the Israelites, along with the Edomites, and Abraham's descendants through Ishmael, the 12 tribes of the Ishmaelites, and his descendants by Keturah. That is what the Jewish believers believed at the time. And this promise was fulfilled by those nations. But Paul reveals that when God promised to Abraham would be the father of many nations, he didn't just mean one, one privileged nation, one group of people based on geography or birth. He meant that he would be the father of all nations, the father of us all. And when God promised Abraham's descendants would inherit the land, this promise was fulfilled when Joshua led God's people across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. But Paul reveals that when God promised this, He didn't just mean one small strip of territory in the Middle East. He meant the whole world. 
And Paul wasn't explaining this to upset anyone. He wasn't trying to prove one side of the argument that was going on in the church of Rome was right and the other side was wrong. Paul is explaining that this is the good news, that this is the gospel, and that when God promised his people would be a blessing to all nations, he didn't just mean receiving the law and showing people how to do good works. God had something bigger in store. And the promise that Abraham's offspring would become a vehicle of blessing to all people was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was of Abraham's line, and the whole world was blessed through him. Jesus' incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit was God's plan all along, and God knew his plan all along. And this justifies his actions throughout history. Because through what has been revealed through Jesus' life and teaching, we see that God didn't just choose one people to save. God chose all of us. And when God spoke the promise, he spoke it into existence, just as he did the rest of creation. God speaking the promise was enough to ensure that it would be so. God fulfills his promises because he has the will and power to do so. So it should come as no surprise to us today that just as Paul explains in this chapter, God, the creator, the life giver, has called into being a family for Abraham of all nations, formed of believing Jews and believing Gentiles on equal terms. And it should come as no surprise that Abraham's family has been transformed into a multi-ethnic family that expands the globe and includes all people, so that Abraham is the father of us all. And I know some of you may be sitting here today thinking, well, that's neat. It's a good bit of trivia, thank you. But what does the debate between the Jewish and Gentile believers in the early church over whether Christians should follow the Old Testament law to the letter or not have to do with us here today. Wasn't this settled by Peter and Paul in the book of Acts? And as I prepared this discussion, I certainly began asking myself that same question. As N.T. Wright writes, not many Christians make much of the fact of being children of Abraham. We're often content to leave that to the Jewish nation or perhaps the Muslim nation too. Yet the idea of Abraham's multi-ethnic family is important throughout the Old Testament, and so should be important to us as well. Right, writes, is it not time to get this theme out of the cupboard, dust it down, and put it to good use once more? Is it not important to us to recognize our shared heritage, that we are all one people, Adopted descendants of our father Abraham, heirs to the promises God made to him. That we will all inherit the world and be a blessing to it. As well as this, we should also recognize that these days, those debates and conflicts between different people in the church that come to God from different backgrounds still remain. The groups are different, but the sentiments remain the same. And all too often, the church can operate like an exclusive, privileged club, an inner circle. 
that expects others to behave and even look the way we think they should before they are welcome, to come before God. All too often, there can be in the church those who would rather act as bouncers than ushers. What do we do when people come into our midst in a way that goes against what we consider to be acceptable within the church? And when given these types of questions, it's always a good idea to go back to the advice we present to the children to help them navigate the challenging situations with which life presents us and ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And the answer then becomes much more simple. And in today's passage from Romans, we see that Jesus accepts all people, just as we are, no matter what, that we all come to him on equal footing. And we know, as we've been recognizing, as we've just celebrated Pentecost, that our job, our commission as Christians, is to share the gospel. And today's passage from Paul's letter to the church in Rome goes into great depth to explain that the gospel is not a moral code. It's not a set of rules or behaviors. It is faith in Jesus. And this means our job sharing the gospel is not to fix behaviors or judge those outside of the church according to the same standards as we live our lives. And we don't have to accept the behaviors, nor do we have to fix them. But we do have to accept all people. Because our job, our commission, is to share the love of Jesus and the good news that salvation is offered through believing in him and accepting him as Lord and Savior through faith and faith alone. If anyone accepts Jesus, he will do the rest. God accepts us no matter what. God accepts everyone no matter what. So my friend Kelly was not a perfect man, to be sure, but he had faith in Jesus. And because of this, and because we serve a gracious God, Kelly has been welcomed into heaven as a child of God. And thankfully, it's not by doing good that we are saved, nor is it by faith plus by doing good, by works, that we are saved. We are saved only through faith in Jesus, through trusting in him to forgive us our sins. We are saved, all of us, by faith plus nothing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible gift that you give us of abundant grace. As we recognize that we all have gone astray, that none of us can live the way you ask us to that all of us need your grace in order to be forgiven. Help us to remember that we're all in the same boat. Help us not to judge others, but rather to share your love with them, to share your truth with them, that they may come to know you through Jesus and through your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.